You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, as we turn once again to this great book of Hebrews, we are asking for your very special presence. Please draw close to us. Give us understanding and inspire our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to talk to you a little while this morning uh, as if the material that we covered is new to you. Okay, I'm going to do a review. Um, so I'm doing that because I really want the flow to be ingrained. Really to see it. And then we're going to go into move on from there. Okay, so and uh, you will find, I think, a couple slides that aren't in your notes. I added a couple slides the other day. I don't remember what they were now or where they were, but we'll see them, I guess. At least I think that's what happened. Actually, uh, look at this here. Yes, okay. All right, so. Hebrews 8, verse 1, right? Um, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And we're going to come back to this in our second half. And with that in mind, uh, we, we um, have pointed out many times now that this is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. See at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heaven. So there is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. We have noted that Psalm 110, verse 1 is important in this book right from the beginning. The third verse is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit down, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is, these are introductory words which already involve Psalm 110. And also uh, in Hebrews 1 verse 13, a direct quote, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So we can see that the preacher, the author is He's just full of Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 4. And uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 is not a direct quote uh, from Psalm 110, but we saw that uh, Psalm 8 was used, and there, after the quoting of Psalm 8, it was pointed out that, well, we haven't arrived there yet. We do not yet see all things put under man. But we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, which is a, obviously a reference to the same event, the enthronement that's pointed out, that's pointed to in Psalm 110 verse 1. And we pointed out that Psalm 110 verse 1 has the uh, information in it, um, you know, 
until I make your enemies your footstool, that reconciles the promise of Psalm 8 with the current situation of the original hearers and readers of this uh, book and with us too. Uh, all things are not you know, under our dominion at this point. That's not the exact language, but you get my point. Um, but no, the Son of God, the Son of Man, has gone before us. And then in chapter 2, there's sort of a, a shift from his kingship, from his enthronement, to his priesthood. And chapter 2, as we have seen, uh, emphasizes Jesus' humanity. That's why it's important when it says, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because He has become one of us. Those He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. And, and then there in the transitional verses at the end of the chapter, uh, it's emphasized His humanity, His understanding uh, of the human struggle is emphasized that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. This is the purpose. So here again we see uh, very clearly his life that he lived was a very, very integral and um, necessary part of the plan of redemption. He couldn't just come here and die for us. He had to live among us. He had to live as one of us. He had to form a human character. And in chapter 3, um, we are strongly encouraged um, to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So again, clearly the shift has been made to the priesthood, to Jesus' priesthood, His high priesthood. And so now, the emphasis is on Psalm 110, verse 4. You see, it's, he's gone from Psalm 110, verse 1, to Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 1, his enthronement. And now, Psalm 110, verse 4, his priesthood. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's what's referred to. And of course, we went into, uh, in chapter 5, we have two separate statements, not just uh, regarding his, the priesthood of our Lord and Savior, but the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 5, verse 6, uh, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. A direct uh, quote. And then again, after emphasizing, after the going through how he learned obedience by the things which he suffered and the struggle he had um, with the second death experience in prayer. He was appointed by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We said that um, he was he's, he, um, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Uh, he became complete 
He formed a human character and then appointed its high priest. Had to be that way. Come it? Forever. Thank you. Exact. Good point. And so there's an emphasis in chapter 5. The priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And uh, then we go to chapter 7. Uh, the earthly priests were made priests without an oath. Uh, but Jesus was made priest with an oath. I think we skipped a little bit here somewhere because in the middle there, there is the exhortation, right? Uh, because of the, between chapter 5 and chapter 7, there is the exhortation, which is because of, or was you know, went to because of the um, slowness of hearing, the dullness of hearing. Uh, so here we go. Chapter 7, verse 20, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. So we can see how this whole treatise, if I can use that word, is largely based on Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 4. King and priest. And this is the... I mean, this, this is... I mean... This is the early church. This is how the Lord inspired them to use certain scriptures to present Jesus. And I dare say we hardly ever hear sermons upon Psalm 110. You know what I'm saying? But I think it was pointed out the other day, uh, I believe it's the most quoted those verses are, are among the most quoted, if not the most quoted, in all the New Testament, especially verse 1. And then, uh, for such a high priest, uh, in chapter 7, verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This is a sort of getting just a little bit ahead of chapter 8 through 10. So here we have, we, we're told directly what his sacrifice was. He offered up Himself for us once and for all. So it's anticipating uh, the next section. And then uh, the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, that's Psalm 110 verse 4, which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. And uh, we can certainly understand this. He formed, he, he became complete as a high priest. He was the Son of God. He became the Son of Man. He formed a human character. And he took humanity with him back to heaven. He didn't just, you know, go through all that and, okay, I'm going to be divine again. He remained divine and human. And that experience that he had, he, 
He's keeping forever. Which frankly means that you know the human race, for several reasons, but that's one of them, one big one, will have closer fellowship with Jesus than the unfallen angels. So here again is a direct uh, reference to Psalm 110, verse 4. Now chapter 5 and chapter 7 are very much related. Uh, we can see here in the chart. Hebrews 5, 1 through 3, we have the, the words, verse 1, for every high priest. Hebrews 7, 26, for such a high priest. 5 verse 1, taken from among men is appointed for men. Chapter 7 verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men. So the law appoints men as high priests. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 again, to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hebrews 7 27, those high priests to offer up sacrifices. Hebrews 5 verse 3, uh, is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. Hebrews 7, 7, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. And then uh, verses 4 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 5, we have, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Chapter 7, verse 28, we have the word of the oath appoints the son. The oath, of course, is uh, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. Hebrews 5, verse 6, you are my son. Hebrews 7, 28, but the word of the oath appoints the son. 5 verse 9, having been perfected. 7 verse 28, the Son who has been perfected. 5 verse 6, you are a priest forever. And 7 verse 28, the Son who has been perfected forever. So clearly, uh, chapter 5 through chapter 7 is a unit. And we have the exhortation in the middle, which came about when he mentioned, you know, uh, the dullness of hearing. So then he went into that problem. And then he came back using Abraham, remember? Because the Lord made a, a, an oath to Abraham. And then that just blended right into the oath of Psalm 110, verse 4, regarding Jesus' high priesthood. And we're back to the order, uh, to the priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, uh, which is um, thoroughly explained in chapter 7. The whole chapter 7 is based on Psalm 110, verse 4. It's an explanation of Psalm 110, verse 4. We saw that yesterday. Hopefully we saw it yesterday. But if you just look at those three sections, it's just taking one point at a time, and maybe explaining is not the right word, explanation and you know, uh, exposition based on, on that. Okay? Now, this brings us up to today. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest. So we have such a high priest. That's Psalm 110, verse 4, very clearly. Who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. That's Psalm 110, verse 1, very clearly. So here, chapter 8, verse 1. 
He says, here is the main point of everything we're saying. Psalm 110.1, Psalm 110.4. I guess I have that here. So, verse 1, see it at the right hand. Um, that's Psalm 110.1. And, um, and then, high priest, that's Psalm 110, verse 4. And so now, so this is the main point of everything we've been saying. Indeed it is. And now he's going to build on this. He's come to this place. He said, look, you know, I've been laying this out. His divinity, his humanity, his human experience, his, how he became truly fitted, not only by appointment, by an oath, but also um, by suffering and building human character. Now, this is the main point. We have a high priest like the one we've been talking about. He's a king. He's a priest. Fully equipped priest. And now, he's going to build upon that. Chapters 8 through 10. Well, before I go on that, let me see. So we have chapters 1 and 2 are a unit. Chapter 3 and 4 are a unit. Though largely, it's exhortation. So we didn't spend much time on that, except for verses 1 through 6. And now we should be able to see from what I shared, chapters 5 through 7 are a unit. Clearly, we saw the same topics very clearly uh, in, uh, in the tables that we looked at. And so it is that chapter 8.1 through 10.18 are a unit. Chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, 18 is a unit. And, um, however, there's three sections in the unit. Chapter 8, 1 through 13. Chapter 9, 1 through 22. And chapter 9, 23 through 10, 18. And after that, it's all exhortation, pretty much. And then, I guess I could say goodbyes at the end. Yeah. And, uh, there are three themes, I, I think, in these sections. One is the sanctuary, okay? And they're, kind, they're in slivers. So these three themes are spread out among the three sections I just mentioned. Sanctuary, and then the two new themes. Uh, and, the, uh, and that is covenant and sacrifice. So we've done all this to build a foundation and now really two new themes being introduced. New covenant, better sacrifice. Better covenant, better sacrifice. And as I said, they're kind of, um, well, they're in all three sections. And I think the, I think the, certainly the sanctuary theme there is there to um, present the better sacrifice. So here we go. We know the main point. Have we had seen this verse before? I can't remember. Okay. So we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
And uh, we're just going to go down through these verses a bit here, okay? A minister of the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Really, the talk about the sanctuary and this unit is really to show its ineffectiveness. And uh, although these first several verses here in chapter 8 are always wonderful, we're trying to explain to a person that there was an earthly and there's a heavenly, and, and from this we can see what the heavenly is like. But really, th this is all explained. I mean, if you just as we go through it, we, I hope we can see that he's just basically explaining it and then like saying, you know, it didn't work. And pointing to the heavenly high priest. So here we go. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also has something to offer. Well, there was some anticipation in chapter 7, as we saw. It told us that he offered himself. But here is just, you know, he, uh, this one, it is necessary that this one also has something to offer. Pretty vague this, in this section so far. But still, the contrast is begun clearly. They offered this one also must have something to offer. He's not quite ready to uh, delve into that yet, it seems. For if he were on earth, notice, if he were on earth, so he's not a Levitical priest at all. He's of a different kind of priesthood. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. There are priests already, that's my word already, but that's the idea, who offer the gifts according to the law. So, again, this is a contrast. And it's really, it may be subtle, but it's, if we've, you know, gone all the way through, okay, there are priests of a different order. He's not in that order. He's in a different order. The order of Melchizedek. And those priests serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. So they're just a copy, a shadow of the heavenly realities. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. And I don't think you have this slide in your uh, paper there. But, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Uh, oh, you do? Okay. Okay, good. That's good. Oh, wait, I don't think you have the next one. But here it is. This is just a comment on what I said a moment ago. That, you know, regarding this sanctuary and, and the, really its purpose in this discussion, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the ones who perform the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So it wasn't working. It wasn't, they, it wasn't reaching the goal. And uh, so, back to verse 6 here. Inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant. Let's see here. Now he's obtained a more excellent ministry. So now he's obtained a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So we have a heavenly sanctuary. And so 
we have a better priesthood, a different priesthood, and so we have a better covenant established on better promises. And uh, we might be justified um, about this point to you know, expect him to talk about, back here at least, to talk about um, the better sacrifice. But he doesn't. Instead, he goes to the better covenant. Okay? And, uh, yeah, so... And I happen to like the way this... That's all. And it's much easier, he's also a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Now watch what happens. So, okay, I like this in New American Standard Bible. I'm going to read it again. Hebrews 8, 6. I, I see that's what happens when I tamper with my slides. I can't. Anyway, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry to the extent that he's also mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So he has obtained a more excellent ministry. He's not a Levitical priest. He is priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's in the heavenly sanctuary. And this then naturally suggests a better covenant. <coughs> naturally suggests a better covenant. And then he says, notice, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. This is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 4, again, right? Um, which clearly calls to our attention a different priesthood. So, um, uh, what was it? Back in, uh, in chapter 2, right? He was, um, what verse did he use? I lost it here momentarily. Uh, he did the same thing as he does here. Oh, he did it with, um, it wasn't chapter 2, it was chapter 7, sorry. He did it with, um, no, that's, that's Melchizedek. Let me think. I'll come back to that. But anyway, he's going to read, uh, no, that's exactly what he did. He did it with Melchizedek. And just the very existence of Melchizedek, he said, you know, there's something wrong with that priesthood, right? So now, he's going to take Jeremiah 31, which talks about a new covenant. And he's going to say, you know, clearly there was something wrong with that old covenant because here he's presenting the need for a new covenant. So the preacher, the author, um, you know, he read about Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4, Genesis 14. And he said, aha, there's need. Something wrong with that first priesthood. There is need of a second one. And then he reads Jeremiah 31. He says, aha, there is something wrong with that so-called first covenant. Um, but there was a need of a second one. It's amazing to me. It's amazing how he takes these scriptures and he sees in them and it's there. The opportunity to present the better priesthood and the better covenant. All right, so, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. 
Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest had? I even had this in my notes here on the slide. So, so the same thing he did here, he did in chapter 7 regarding Melchizedek. I'll read it. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to Aaron? He's saying, aha. You know? And he needed that. He needed some scripture, right? He couldn't just do away with the Levitical priesthood. And the scripture was there. Psalm 110, verse 4. And Genesis 14. And... Uh, and so he goes ahead with this argument in Hebrews chapter 8. I'll go back to verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, verse 8, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. So he takes this verse and he sees it as evidence that yeah there was something wrong with the first one because finding fault with them he said we already read that okay. and then he continues for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and that he says a new covenant He has made the first obsolete. That's uh, the point. So now, that being said, I want to come to this next very important section. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 uh, says this. Maybe I have this in the wrong one. Let's just read this. Every priest, this is Hebrews 10, 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Okay, so we talked about the new covenant. Now we're turning attention to the better sacrifice. Okay. Here's the point. Every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. In other words, they were doing it day after day after day. Nothing was happening. No change was taking place. I read a story one time about, I, I, I don't even know if I remember the punchline, but told about these penguins that came into church and they sat down and they listened to the sermon and they got up and they left church. Nothing was different. They were still penguins. They were, you know, nothing had changed. That's what this is saying. Yes. In the first case, right? Yeah, it's it's uh, it really brings to bear that there's only two religions in the whole world, really: righteousness by faith in Jesus and everything else. Unfortunately, this, which was set up to break the heart over the cost of sin, right? I mean, when Adam and Eve saw that, you know, they were clothed with the uh, animal skins. They came from someplace. And, of course, in the next chapter, we see uh, 
the animal sacrifice. So the Lord had no doubt, you know, provide, but in providing that skin, had explained to them that what happened to these animals is going to, you know, I am going to have to die because of sin, your sin. They were, they couldn't believe it. And you know that even seeing a leaf die broke their heart. But in short order, it became just a, a form ceremony, even a payoff. And uh, anyway, repeatedly offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So as we saw in chapter 8, verse 3, it was necessary that this one also have something to offer, and I hope, here we go, 9 verse 14. How much more, speaking of the ineffectiveness of those sacrifices, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So he's presented, he is presenting in this section, this unit, chapter 8, verse 1 through 1018, a better covenant and a better sacrifice. One that can cleanse the conscience as it's put here. One that can change the life as it's put here. Again, Every, high, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which never, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Psalm 110, verse 1, Psalm 8. This is a powerful presentation of the gospel of Jesus. His sacrifice, his priesthood. And uh, I um, did not cover, am not covering this section in any detail. Um, chapter one, 8, verse 1 through 10, 13. I did show you the outline that um, you know, the three themes, really, the sanctuary, which is really there to show its ineffectiveness, the new covenant, and the sacrifice. Another very important, another very important, uh, I guess, word and, and uh, theme is the discussion regarding blood. Not only in that section, but even in the next section under the exhortation section where the word blood is, is referring back to what's presented in this section. You all are familiar with the um, statement that's made there uh, which still stands that without shedding of blood there is no remission. Okay. And he talks about you know him entering the heavenly sanctuary, by His blood, and cleansing by His blood, and so on. So those are 
further topics for study. Just remember that uh, there, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. That's a little bit under uh, that. I, that that concept is a little bit under, I guess, attack for lack of a better word these days. Uh, even among a few that really should know better. But anyway, um, I mentioned to you yesterday, I anticipated, I didn't know how long this was, this section. I mentioned to you that I, I'm going to, that I plan to, I want to show you, I want to kind of leave this whole study that we've done. I want to show you something that to me is very precious regarding the presentation of Abraham in the book of Hebrews. Okay? So can we make that switch then? I'm not going to have prayer because, you know, that was a mis that was, well, you know why. <laughs> They'll think it's the end of the recording if I do that. Okay, so uh, Hebrews, Hebrews, uh, I'm just going to unplug this here. So Hebrews chapter 11, you'll notice here. Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about Abraham, okay? Uh, chapter 11, verse 17 and onward. You're familiar with those verses. There it talks about the offering of Isaac, okay? And uh, verse 18 quotes, In Isaac your seed shall be called, and so on. So, um, I want to, we're going to come back to it. I want to set this up. I want to just turn to Galatians chapter 3. I know you... Perhaps not everybody has a Bible here, but many of you do. I'm going to just turn to Galatians chapter 3. And uh, a little while since I gave this study, but I think I'll be okay. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, right? Here it says, uh, this is going to require, uh, you're going to have to follow me here, okay? Hebrews 3, verse 6. Galatians 3, verse 6. Thank you. She's following You guys are following me. I'm not even following myself, am I? Galatians 3, 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, you know Galatians, uh, you know, he's talking about righteousness by faith and he's saying, look, Abraham, you know, he believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness, right? And that's, that's the point that he makes there. And by the way, in an introduction to this section, I just want to remind you, well, it's right here in Galatians 3, verse 8, we're told that the gospel was preached to Abraham, Right? The gospel was preached to Abraham. And over there in uh, John, is it John chapter 8? Uh, or is it John chapter 5? Get that mixed up. I think it's John chapter 8. Um, Jesus himself said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He looked forward with joyful anticipation to see my day. And he saw my day. And, and he saw it, Jesus says, and was glad. Okay, I think that's chapter 8, verse 56, but I'm not positive. I'm just moving along here. Okay, but you know the verse, right? Okay, so Galatians 3, verse 8, the gospel was preached to Abraham. Jesus himself said, Abraham looked forward to seeing my day, and he did see it, and he was glad. So then, now we are here, Galatians 3, verse 6, Abraham believed God's accounted him for righteousness. Now we're going to go to the book of James, okay? Yeah, we're going to go to the book of James, and uh, we're going to find here in uh, chapter, where is it? Chapter 2 is what I think, where this is referenced. Uh, let's see here. Okay, chapter 2 and um, verse 21. 
chapter 2, 21, where it says, so Galatians 3, verse 8, Abraham believed God has accounted him for righteousness. When, when, when was that said? Remember? 3, verse 8. It was said in Genesis uh, chapter 15. You will have seed as numberless as the stars of heaven. And Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. Well, the Bible says, by the way, that there's no name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved, the name Christ Jesus. But here the Bible says that God promised Abraham lots of children, and Abraham believed it, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what's going on there? That's a question I'm going to leave with you, okay? We're going to, we're going to answer the question, though, when we, as we move on. Did you follow that? I'm saying, look, we're supposed to believe in Jesus for, you know, eternal life. But here, the Lord told Abraham he's going to have numberless children, and he believed it, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what's going on here? That's, that's the question. And, uh, but we're back to this here, where it just says this in James 2.21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Okay. There's something wrong with this verse on the surface. There's something wrong with this verse. And uh, when I say that, many people point out, well, you know, the, the Genesis 15, Galatians 3, verse 6, says that Abraham believed God was accounting him for righteousness. And here it says Abraham did something. You know, he offered Isaac on the altar, and it was accounted to him uh, for righteousness. That's the next verse, or the next two verses, verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Verse 23, And Abraham, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness. Now what's wrong with that? Nothing, she says. Okay, anybody else? Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's great. He just says here, James says, and I remember the first time I read this, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. That's when I came studied all this out. But James takes a verse from Genesis 15. He says it was fulfilled in Genesis 22. He's like, is he confused? I don't think so. <laughs> I think there's something deeper for us to look at here. You follow me? Okay, all right. Yes? Yeah, but that's not my my point is that that's all true. All my point is simply that he's taken a verse directly out of a different context. He said it was fulfilled in Genesis when when he offered Isaac on the altar. Though that the verse you won't find that verse in Genesis 22 where Isaac was offered on the altar. It's from Genesis 15. That's my point, and that's what we're going to uh, continue with. Okay, so now. We're going to go, so I brought up two little questions. You know, how could it be that he believed that he's going to have seed as numbers as the stars of heaven, and that's counting him for righteousness? And then the second one is, you know, why did he take a verse from Genesis 15 and said it was fulfilled in an event that happened in Genesis 22? I'm sorry, I have a phone call. I have to leave now. <laughs> sorry. Okay, so we're going back to Hebrews 
chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We want to pick up here, like I said before, about verse 17, okay? About verse 17. Here it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, that's the question. Well, what was he tested about? That's the question, okay? We're going to come back to this. What was he tested about? Okay? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Here's a really big clue. And he who had received the promises, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. In other words, God had promised Abraham seed as numberless as the stars of heaven, Abraham believed it was accounted him for righteousness. Let's read verse 11 and 12 before we go on, okay? Verse 11 says, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who promised. Therefore, one from one man, and him as good as dead, was born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, okay? innumerable as the sand in the seashore. So Abraham not only believed that God would give him children, or you know, offspring, seed, as numbers of stars of heaven, but he believed it when the scripture says he was as good as dead because of his age, as far as Childbearing goes, okay? And same way with Sarah, okay? Let's hold our finger here in 11. Let's go to Romans 4. I just need to read you one verse in Romans 4. And here we'll find it. One second. Oh, yeah, verse 19. Notice it says of Abraham, Being not weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, the King James, I like it, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Okay, Here it says, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he didn't consider these things, right? So when he believed God, he about having seen his numbers of stars of heaven, we will be coming back to Romans 4 in a moment, but he did so, now we're going back to Hebrews 11, he did so in spite of his own body now dead, and in spite of the deadness of Sarah's womb. This is very important. Now I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to show you. Okay? Um, I, I believe I'm going to demonstrate to you from the Bible. Um, Abraham was tested on God's faith, on, on, regarding his faith, on God's life-giving, resurrecting power. So the gospel was preached to Abraham, which involves the resurrection. God promised Abraham 
you would have chores and almost the stars of heaven. And he didn't consider his own body now dead, nor did he consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. He believed God. He believed in God's life-giving power. Therefore, it was accounted him for righteousness. Now, there's more, okay? Now we're back in Hebrews 11. And uh, now I'm going to show you more from what I just, the statement I just made. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, starting back up there, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, okay, tested and his belief in God's life-giving, resurrecting power, he offered up Isaac. Notice, this, just like James 2 does, by taking the verse from Genesis 15 and saying it was fulfilled in Genesis 22, James understood these chapters. This is again a powerful um, demonstration of the early church and their familiarity with Jesus in the Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures, so-called. So, and it's putting, these verses are putting Genesis 15 and Genesis 22 together. It's saying, look, of whom it was said in Isaac your seed shall be called. Genesis 12 also. So, he who had received the promises. What promises? The promises, among others, that he would have seed as numerous as the stars of heaven. And he has specifically this promise in mind because he says, of, you know, of whom it was said, Isaac, in whom your seed shall be called. So Isaac, I mean, Abraham, being a human being, is thinking, well, what about the seed is numbers of the stars of heaven? What's going to happen, you know, if Isaac is no more? And then it tells us, powerfully in verse 19, concluding, thinking it all over, God promised me seed is numbers of the stars of heaven, God is asking me to. Offer Isaac on the altar. He came to the conclusion that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. So he was tested. The way Isaac was born, and here in Genesis 22, regarding Isaac's um, the, the request, which we don't understand. There's, you know, there's things that at least I don't understand. About it, but um, anyway, he was tested on God's life-giving, resurrecting power. Okay. So he believed God. 15, 16 years later, he still had faith in God's life-giving, resurrecting power. So much so that he, the only thing he could figure, because he was so strongly believing in God's first promise, in Isaac your seed shall be called, the only thing he could figure is that God's going to raise him up from the dead. So he was tested in his faith in the gospel. That's why his belief in God, because he was tested in his faith in God's resurrecting power, which has been presented. Its importance has been presented. Even though the word has not been used, you know, I have said it several different times here that the resurrection and the enthronement were looked at, certainly in the book of Hebrews, as one event, you see. So Abraham was tested. Abraham, who we saw back in chapter 7, was presented as an example of one who, through faith and patience, obtained the promise. Actually, the word there is a little different. It's like he got, he got, he, um, 
you know, it's, yes, he did, but he, he, hasn't, he hadn't obtained it all yet. He will along with us, as it says a little bit later in this book. Anyway, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. And then this comes this. I'm reading from the, King James, the New King James Version, okay? From which he also received him in a figurative sense. So the translators here, the New King James and the New International Version and, and so on, um, they have said, what am I going to do with this verse? They have said, well, he was so close to being sacrificed that you know, figuratively he did receive him back from the dead. And I'm not a King James only guy. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, in fact, I hardly ever read the King James Version. It's too hard for me. <laughs> Some of those words are too hard for me. Okay? My favorite translation really is the New American Standard Bible. Uh, but I use New King James because, you know, I'm presenting things to the public, and that's quite well known. Anyway, the good old King James does not seek to add any words here. doesn't seek to explain, it just translates. From whence also he received him, and the word is parable, in a parable doesn't say he figuratively received him back from the dead because he was so close, you know, the angel stopped Abraham. It doesn't say that. That word's not there. He received him in a parable. What does that mean? This is exactly what it means. It means that um, he concluded that God was able to raise him up from the dead. This is my opinion of exactly what it means. Excuse me. Uh, from whence he also received him in the first place. Remember we read? The deadness of Sarah's womb? His own body now dead? He figured, hey, I received him from the dead in the first place. God can raise him from the dead again. From whence also he received him in a parable. So the way he received him in the first place was the figure. That was the parable. It wasn't figuratively receiving him back from you know, a death that he never experienced. That's not what it says. All I'm telling you, that's not what it says in the Greek. There was a, that was an um, effort to try to make it make sense. So the parable, the figure, was the manner of Isaac's birth, which was miraculous, demonstrating God's miraculous, life-giving, resurrecting power. I haven't given you all the evidence on this yet. Now I'm going to ask you to turn with me to chapter 4. We have four minutes left, but that's okay. Uh, now notice. Romans. Sorry. Uh, back over there to Romans chapter 4. We're going to pick right up at... Uh, we're going to read several verses here. Uh, starting with verse 17. And I want you to notice, I'll, I'll point out some emphasis here, okay? Verse 17, As is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. Notice God, who does what? Gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So who did he believe in? The God. This is talking about the promise of Genesis you know, 15. 
Who did he believe in? The God who gives life to the dead. Can you understand why I, I just am, I have no problem believing that it was Apostle Paul that wrote the book of Hebrews? This is the same thing that's being said in Hebrews chapter 11. Continue. And cause those things which did not exist as though they did. Now notice. Who contrary to hope, in hope, believed that he, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your seed be. That's Genesis 15. Who did he believe in in Genesis 15? The God who gives life to the dead. Now notice. Being not weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. Since he was about 100 years old, I can't read this without the King James still in my head. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not. So, so there you go, right there. We've already covered that. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Now notice, over there in Hebrews 11 it says, he concluded that God was able to raise him up, right? Notice what it says here. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. This is talking about Genesis 15 that concluded, talking about Genesis 22. But can you see, Abraham was convinced that God was able to give him seed from the deadness of Sarah's womb. But now notice, verse 22, and therefore was accounted to him for righteousness. He replied to Genesis 15, but James applies it to Genesis 22. Not just the same verse, but the same idea. Faith in God's life-giving, resurrecting power. And, now notice, here's the kicker here. This was not written for his sake alone that was imputed to him, but also for us. Who? It shall be imputed to who? Us who what? Believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Abraham was tested on his belief in the gospel, which involved his belief in God's life-giving, resurrecting power. He did believe. He was fully convinced that what God had promised, he had the power to do. He concluded that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And so it was accounted him for righteousness, as it will be also accounted to us if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for those scriptures. Thank you for the, what to me at least is just a powerful um, demonstration of the understanding of some of the things that Jesus presented to the two men on the road to Emmaus, all the things concerning himself in the Old Testament scriptures. And um, thank you for these dear folks who have sat through this seminar. Uh, please help us to take whatever we've learned and to gain so much more from this book of Hebrews. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.